With There was one line in the throne speech on Tuesday, and we talked about this earlier. The throne speech, I think we can all agree, was overshadowed by the number of protesters outside the B.C. legislature. Uh, some people being pushed and shoved, certainly intimidated. That did take away. The speech went ahead as planned. The public part of that was cancelled. But we did have the throne speech delivered on Tuesday. There was one line in the speech, though, that I felt was worthy of a bigger discussion. And it has to do with guns. And the exact line is this. This spring, new legislation will give police more tools to block the use of illegal firearms and ban guns from schools, colleges, universities, and hospitals. And it was that particular line that got me thinking, do we have a problem with illegal firearms in schools, colleges, universities, and hospitals? Is that something that I just didn't notice that's been happening at all of these places in BC? Well, I thought we should talk about it a little bit more. So let's bring on Rod Giltaka. He is the Executive Director and CEO of the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights and joins me now on the line. Rod, thanks so much for being with us this morning. My pleasure, Jill. What's your response to that line in the throne speech? Well, my response is similar to yours. I wasn't aware that that we had a problem uh, with guns showing up in schools and colleges and universities. So, you know, I, I don't want to, usually this is the point where I would say, I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but I really do want to put a fine point on it, which is, this is the kind of language that we see not only from provincial governments, but federal governments. Um, and it's, I find it incredibly patronizing. And basically it's the government saying um, that no one in the country is thoughtful enough to, to think about what it is we're actually saying. And they'll take this line and say, well, I'm glad, you know, our government, uh, you know, that is a very well-funded entity is doing something to stop all this violence. It's, it's a meaningless phrase um, that it's just, yeah, I just, I, I can't help but think that they think that we're stupid and that, that we're going to take this stuff. Um, more specifically, if they are talking about multiple victim public shootings, this is very similar to what they did in Montreal after the Dawson College shooting. You had someone come in. Uh, murder, well, in that case, one person and shoot 18 other people. And, you know, they ignored the gun ban that was in place at the university. So uh, enough with the with the, the ridiculous talk and actually do something about this gang problem and opiate problem that we have. Well, and, and that's, I think, part of the irony of this is it comes under the part of the throne speech with the title Safer Communities. And it starts off by saying British Columbians deserve to feel safe in the communities they call home. Absolutely. I think everybody would agree with that. Then it goes on to say the government is acting to fight crime and gangs, expanding education and prevention programs to stop kids from entering gang life. And then it's the line about this new legislation to bring in these tools to block illegal firearms in gun, uh, and guns in schools, colleges, university and hospitals. Uh, is there not already law, uh, a law in place that blocks the use of illegal firearms in not only those places, but anywhere? <laughs> Of course there is. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. I did an analysis during uh, when Bill C-71 was going through the House and, and I testified for a committee uh, in Ottawa uh, on that, well, against Bill C-71. And I, uh, in our brief, we added the fact that if a person broke into someone's home or a business to steal a firearm to be used in gang activity and they went and they shot somebody in that gang activity, they'd be subject to 13 different criminal code charges totaling up, up to, I think it was 170 years in prison. 
So the problem isn't that government needs to enact more rules or that they need to bring give police more tools. It is the judiciary that that won't put these people in jail. And in fact, sometimes if you shoot somebody with an illegal gun and gang activity, you'll be out on bail within a couple of days. And we've seen that repeatedly in, in urban centers. So it is the, the entire responsibility for how bad things have gotten with opiates and gangs and shootings and, and all the rest of the stuff. It lies squarely uh, on the government and the judiciary for just not exercising the power that they already have. Uh, because wasn't there, uh, and I'm going off memory, but was there not a case uh, or um, uh, numbers released, and I think it was out of Toronto recently, on the number of crimes commissioned and the, there was the use of an illegal gun in those crimes. And a vast majority of the people, and these were people that were arrested, had been released from the system. They had been charged and convicted earlier, and they'd been released. They were back out on the streets, and they were repeat offenders. And they, yeah, and they offended again. Uh, <laughs> This is the revolving door um, of, uh, well, I don't even call it the justice system anymore. It's, I'm so cynical about it. I just call it the legal system. Um, and, you know, it's funny. The first line in Safer Communities in the throne speech that you mentioned is British Columbians deserve to feel safe. I don't, I don't, nobody deserves to feel safe. They deserve to be safe. And, and that's everything after that line reflects exactly what they said in this line. It's all about feelings. It's all about perceptions. You know, I I spoke to the second highest ranking police officer in Vancouver and had a great conversation with about almost an hour. uh, And it was about uh, six weeks ago. And the Vancouver police know exactly what's going on. They know exactly what the problem is. They know exactly who's doing all these things. And they don't uh, agree with gun bans. In fact, uh, Chief uh, Chief Palmer um, is the I think he's the president of the Canadian Chiefs of Police Association. And, and he said gun bans are useless for what uh, for the problems they're facing. So I want real solutions. I don't want any more talk. It drives me crazy. <laughs> well, and, and, and you're right. The whole the word feel safe really does come into play, because if we look at Vancouver, Vancouver has a mayor that has gone on record several times saying that if and when the federal government gives cities and municipalities the power to ban handguns, he'll be the first one to sign up. Well, is that a case of people might feel safe, but it's ridiculous that that's not that's not banning criminals. Criminals aren't suddenly going to look at that and say, oh, I, be- I guess I better get rid of this illegal gun I have. It's not it's not targeting the right area at all. Well, people like the mayor of Vancouver and the mayor of Toronto are a real problem for people that would go through all the trouble um, of getting a firearms license, all 2.2 million of us and store our firearms responsibly and go to the gun club and follow all the safety protocols and all the storage regulations and and transport regulations and licensing regulations and authorizations to transport all this paperwork and all this infrastructure just just for the privilege of owning a firearm and we're under full attack of of people like that and and they're they're not going to do anything to stop the real problem um, and the real reason that bullets are flying in downtown vancouver or in playgrounds in in toronto and uh, politicians like that, I, I just, it's, it's just immoral. And, uh, and yeah, I, uh, a municipal handgun ban, are you joking me? What, what would be the rule then for somebody, because I think somebody that hears that line too, and it's this idea of illegal firearms in schools, colleges, universities, and hospitals. Well, if it's an illegal firearm, it's an illegal firearm. It doesn't matter where you take it. You're not allowed to take it anywhere 
anyway. Uh, but what if it's a legal firearm and not as not like somebody was going to, but are there not already rules in place and laws in place? So obviously, if you're a legal uh, gun owner, you can take if you have a restricted weapon, obviously there are there are strict rules for that. I mean, could you technically, if you owned a rifle legally, walk around with it and say you're going to visit somebody in the hospital, but you're going somewhere that you need the gun after? Could you take it into the hospital with you? Um, I think theoretically, um, I don't know that that has ever happened. I mean, I do this, this is what I do every day and I've done it every day for, for almost five years, uh, on the political side and, and 12 years as a firearms instructor, I've never heard of anyone being on their way to the shooting range, but had to swing into the hospital and didn't have a vehicle to secure the firearm and, and brought it into the hospital to, to visit somebody like these are so, they're, they're outlandish hypotheticals, and they do nothing to solve real legitimate problems where real legitimate people are actually being hurt. So, and, and, if, it, and if, I mean, to me that says banning guns from schools and universities and colleges, that's, to me, that's aimed at multiple victim public shootings. But if someone's going to commit a multiple victim public shooting, Right. They're going to commit multiple counts of murder. And and 98 percent of the time, these people kill themselves after. I'm sure they're not worried about some, uh, you know, a firearm charge for, you know, ignoring a gun ban. So, again, I, I just would really implore politicians to stand up and be thoughtful people and work on on real public safety. Right. Because even I mean, more of the lunacy of this statement is even if you have a legal registered pistol, you're already banned from taking it to any of those places. Well, you can't take it. Well, when it comes to restricted firearms, you can't take them anywhere but to and from in the most reasonably direct route in the circumstances from your home to an approved shooting range. And when it comes to non-restricted, yeah, you can, you can theoretically walk down the street with a non-restricted firearm, but how often do you see that? And the, and the reason you don't see it is because our society is, is – they're, they're so hypersensitive to anything to do with guns right now that you'll have the police pointing guns at you. And thus, law-abiding gun owners, licensed gun owners, they, they're not going to do that because they don't want to have negative interactions with the police. So this, this, it's a non-problem. Right. And even in that scenario, it's not as though you'd be walking around the street with it loaded, waving it around. You, does it not have to be in a case or with a trigger lock? And it certainly couldn't be loaded. Well, it can't be loaded for sure, because uh, you'd be subject to a charge of careless use of a firearm. So you can't load a firearm unless you're in an area where it can be legally and safely discharged. So, of course, you know, downtown Langley uh, is not a place where you can do that. So and every one of these charges, um, whether it's storage, uh, display, transportation, handling, all these charges come with uh, five year penalties, up to five years uh, in prison, each charge. So if, if I were to load a firearm in a, in a downtown core, even if it's non-restricted and I was licensed, I loaded that firearm, I could be, I'd be facing a decade in prison. So, again, the, this big focus on the people deserve to feel safe um, and focusing on non-problems just to make it look like they're doing something, it's, it's very patronizing. And so just before uh, I let you go, what could we, be, we do? And, and you talked about the judiciary. What, would, what do you think what a, a step would be to make people not only feel safe, but to be safe? I think the problem is so deep 
I don't even think that that kicking the the Trudeau liberals out and straightening out all the legislation. I don't even think that would help. It's I don't know. We're so far down this road of of you know government being more of a, a public relations um, entity rather than a, a governing entity. That I, I don't know what it would take, uh, but certainly um, I think as an individual voter, you need to reject people that will tell you things that are are completely fanciful and uh, and start to support people that say, you know, I'm going to solve the gang problem, period, you know, and I'll do whatever it takes. Um, I think that's just where you need to go. Uh, It's not about feelings. It's about reality. All right, Rod, we will leave it there. Thank you so much. Always good to talk to you. Anytime. Well, the latest distracted driving ticket to get tossed out by a B.C. judge could lead to some adjustments in the law itself. And that's according to the province's public safety minister. This is a decision that was handed down in Victoria Provincial Court on Tuesday and concerned a Victoria woman who was fined for having her phone sitting on her lap while she was stopped at a red light. And this happened in December 2018 in Esquimalt. The officer who issued the ticket noted that the phone's screen was not illuminated at the time and the woman wasn't touching the phone which was connected to a charging cable. So what does this mean for the law in general and if there are going to be changes in the law? Let's bring in Kyla Lee, a lawyer for Acumen Law who has defended many people who have been given these types of tickets. Kyla, thanks so much for being back on the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, What does this ruling mean, do you think? Well, I think this means that Finally, we're going to see the change that we've all been begging the government for to our distracted driving laws, because to some extent, the idea that you can be not in violation of the law if you have a loose phone sitting directly on your lap where it's sort of clear that your intention is that you're going to be looking at the phone or picking it up or touching it, that is almost absurd. And if the law doesn't prohibit that, then it needs to be adjusted to make it very clear that that's prohibited conduct and therefore make the rest of it clear so we all know what we can and can't do with our phones. In this case, the woman was pulled over. The officer apparently noticed or saw that she was glancing down at her lap and and said that she had been glancing down at her lap a few times. The woman said that the phone had been next to her right thigh on the driver's seat. So is that in itself illegal to have the phone loose sitting on the seat? It's not illegal to have your phone sitting loose on the seat. Um, The law prohibits you having your phone in your hand, essentially holding the phone. And and this judgment interpreted holding to mean grasping or clutching the phone with your hand, um, touching it in any way. Um, But if your phone's just loose in the vehicle, there have been numerous decisions from the BC Supreme Court now that have confirmed that that is not against the law. Uh, The officer also said that because the phone was charging, that that was a function of the phone and that meant that the phone was in use. What do you think about that? I think the the justice came to the right conclusion on that uh, issue in this case, which is that charging isn't a function of the phone. Charging is something that your phone can do and has to do, but it's no different than any other electronic device that you have, like your television, which was an example given in the, in the case. If your television is consistently sitting in your house, plugged into your wall, you're not always using your TV just because getting electricity from from the wall socket is a function of the television. So I think that was a very common sense approach to this argument that charging the phone on its own is use. And so as it stands now, uh, because I think one of the ironies of this case is had she had the phone in a holder on the dash and was touching it, 
like you might touch the radio, that's probably much safer. Uh, are you allowed to do that? You're not allowed to touch it if it's in a holder on the dash unless it's one single touch to end, accept, or decline a call. Um, So you can't touch it to confirm a direction on your GPS. You can't touch it to skip a song on your your, uh, music player. You're only allowed to touch it to end, accept, or decline a call, which, again, is another absurdity in the law because all of those things are sort of equally distracting, but one is prohibited and the rest aren't. And I think what's been argued before or brought up before, too, is it's absolutely no different than pushing a button or scrolling or searching on your car stereo. No, or or adjusting the heat in your car or anything else in your car that actually distracts you from the roadway or having any object in your car that distracts you. The law, I don't think it has adapted. I mean, this was drafted back in 2010. Technology with our electronic devices has come a long way in the last decade. What we do with our devices and our connection to our devices has come a long way in the last decade. And the law needs to adapt to reflect the changing social reality that we have. Uh, Because if it doesn't, it sounds like we're going to see more and more of these cases and it's going to be up to people who get these tickets to then hire people like you, take them to court and go through this, which doesn't seem like the best use of the court's time. It's not a good use of court time, and it's not fair to people like this individual and like everybody else who's come before her to have to pay for lawyers to try and get clarity in a law when we have a government whose job it is to write a law that's clear and to keep the law um, up to date to reflect where we are in our society at, at this time. It shouldn't fall on the backs of citizens to do this work that government should be doing. Uh, Because as it stands now, just if somebody wanted to be a bit of a rabble rouser and wanted to drive around, say, with a plastic toy phone in their hand and make it look like they were talking on the phone, chances are they would be pulled over and and an officer would would, uh, think that they were pulling somebody over talking on the phone. Is doing that illegal? Arguably, that would amount to obstruction because you're interfering with an officer's enforcement duties. Um, And obviously, don't do it because uh, you don't want to risk getting a ticket and have an officer go, well, we'll sort it out in court. Right. But to make the point, it just seems because the law does seem so absurd in the interpretation that if it's not an electronic device, if it's a, I mean, you could be holding a bar of soap to your head and it would look like you were on the phone, but you wouldn't technically be breaking any laws. Oh, yeah. You can, I mean, anything that's distracting that we all know is distracting, you can, you can do in your car and you might not necessarily be breaking a law by doing it. Um, Similarly, you can be holding any number of things. And I've seen cases where people have been acquitted because they've been holding something that the officer mistook for a cell phone and the officer acknowledged that they could have been mistaken. And those people, again, have to go through all of this difficulty of going to court, litigating their cases, taking time off work to come and testify and explain what happened for something that could have been avoided if the law had been written in a very clear and specific fashion. And does it seem like it's it's kind of, I, I don't know if unfair is the right word, but it does seem like there's so much focus on touching a phone. And if you get caught doing that or changing a, a, a channel on a phone, you get caught doing that, you get a ticket. Whereas I think anybody who drives or if you take the bus and you can see into vehicles on the roads, uh, we see people all the time that have pets on their laps, that have pizzas in their cars, that are eating, putting on makeup, sometimes uh, doing all of these things. And it seems like, does it, does it just me or does it seem disproportionate, the number of people with phones that get distracted driving tickets, because wouldn't all of those other things be driving without undue care and attention? 
Absolutely. And Alberta is a good example of a province that's identified the risk associated with those things and has written a distracted driving law that focuses on the distraction, not on the type of thing that's distracting you. And I think we're unnecessarily limiting the ability of officers to properly enforce the importance of paying attention on the road by saying you can only ticket people for electronic devices and not other sources of distraction. Alberta just prohibits in a distracted driving law all those things, pets on laps, eating while you're driving, um, anything that might prevent you from paying attention to the roadway. So would you like to see BC adopt something like that? Or what do you think needs to be done to make the law clear here? Well, I actually, in an earlier blog post, I did rewrite the distracted driving law that we have in British Columbia to try and make it very clear for people. I think that's one thing that we need to do is we need to make the law say, this is what you can't do, explicitly list it all and list explicitly what you can do. So it's clear to everybody. And I think we also need to look at the categories of penalties that people are being given. You know, checking a text message at a red light is inherently less dangerous than holding your phone to your ear while you're driving down the highway and the penalty should reflect the severity of the conduct. And do you think this latest court ruling then if people are continuing to get tickets which likely they will be unless we get to a time where the law is changed will this latest court ruling then be be used as a precedent and people will be able to, to say well look at this case if they too are ticketed? Yes, absolutely. I see cases of uh, of cell phone tickets for people having the phone in the, their lap all the time. Um, and this case is going to have significant precedential value um, in determining whether those people should be convicted or acquitted. All right. So well, it's an interesting one for sure. And we'll see uh, if uh, I know the uh, public safety minister has said that they take the court ruling seriously and they're looking at what might need to change. So hopefully we'll see something uh, in the future. Kyla Lee, always good to chat with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Well, Japan's health minister is saying they have received word the U.S. government is planning to evacuate the Americans on board the Diamond Princess, which is still anchored just off the coast of Japan, and then fly them out using a chartered plane. He also said they have received the, received the results of 217 people who have been tested on board. 67 have tested positive, including 38 people who do not have symptoms who will now be transported to medical facilities. This, as we're also learning that France officials have confirmed today a Chinese tourist has died of the COVID-19 coronavirus, and that marks the first death from the illness in Europe. So how are people feeling about the virus itself, the response to the virus, and in the future, how will it change people when it comes to travel or trusting health officials? Let's bring in the CEO at Ipsos, Daryl Bricker, about a new poll Ipsos has done. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thanks for having me on, Joe. Uh, What did you ask people about uh, the coronavirus? Oh, you name it, we asked. Uh, (laughs) Everything from a sense of threat to who people would listen to to get uh, better information, uh, how much confidence they had, for example, in the Canadian government uh, to be able to deal with this crisis, things that they'd be interested in seeing that they might change in their own personal lives and their own behavior as a result of this, but also things that they would support uh, public institutions doing to prevent the spread of the disease. All right, let's start with the personal threat. Uh, How did people respond uh, with, we're hearing these stories, uh, even with some confirmed cases in Canada, uh, we're certainly hearing more stories about quarantine and uh, it being a much bigger threat in other countries. How did people uh, gauge their own personal threat? 
Well, you've described it perfectly, uh, and that's that they really see it as something being more out there than here. So uh, about uh, when you ask people about, say, for example, your own personal sense of threat, it's actually fairly low. Uh, it's, a, it's around 14%. Actually, it's lower than that, Can't it's about 8%. Uh, but when you ask them whether it's a threat to the world, that goes up to almost half of them. So it seems to work in concentric circles. The further away, it's a bigger threat. The closer it gets to you and your family. Today, at least, uh, people are feeling it's, it's actually not a significant threat. They're watching it closely. They want things done to prevent it from becoming a significant threat, but they don't see it as something that's, happen- that's uh, imminently going to happen to them today. All right. And I should have pointed out uh, just before uh, that this wasn't just Canadians that were questioned. This poll uh, takes a look at people in, in several different countries. Right. So we looked at people in eight countries. And obviously, the people who are closest to, uh, to China are among the people who are the most concerned, for example, like Australia and Japan. Although Russia shares a border with China and they're among the least concerned. So, you know, go figure. But uh, um, the, the people who are on the kind of Pacific Ocean part of this and Australia and especially Japan are the most concerned. Uh, you talked about the high awareness of the coronavirus and uh, Canada came in pretty high as far as uh, a great deal of awareness or a fair amount. Yeah, we're in the 80% percent, uh, range. So this is one of those stories where people, uh, it's interesting, we asked them, you know, do you think the media is exaggerating it? How aware are you of it? And people actually see this as something that should be watched. So 80%, over 80% of them, of them tell us, uh, the ones in Canada that we interviewed, say that they're watching it. And they also don't believe that it's an exaggeration. They do believe that there's, this is a significant, significant global threat. So they're watching it closely and uh, they're watching it get closer to Canada. Uh, you also asked people about uh, the uh, the perceived uh, threat or the perceived uh, whether it's a high threat from the virus. And again, it really depends on where you're situated and where you're looking around the world. Right. So if, if you're, as I said before, living in Asia, if you're living in Japan today, yeah, you're absolutely very concerned about it. But if you're living in Canada, um, in terms of your own personal situation, you don't really see it as much of a threat. But you know that this is something that has the potential to spread. And one of the things that we've seen in, in, the, in our survey research is that they really don't feel that they're getting an accurate take on what's happening here. So some of the uncertainty, I think, about what's actually happening in China is one of the things that's driving the, 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 uh, the sense of, uh, of, of public concern because they, they don't really... Uh, believe that they're getting the absolute truth about what's going on. Uh, Which isn't a huge surprise, given uh, the information that came forward that China officials, uh, Chinese officials knew about this before uh, before it was actually made public, and people questioning uh, really how many people are in quarantine and how we get that accurate information. Yeah, well, and and it is a statement of fact. And, um, you know, there's two things that have happened uh, when it comes from communications from China. I mean, one, that they've the Chinese government's basically come out and said, you know, the local officials were, didn't tell us what was going on. So there is this admission, very uncommon in China, that there was something going on locally that the national government wasn't in control of. But then there's another part, which is, I think, a natural uh, part of dealing with something that's new, in which they keep changing definitions, they keep changing counts, uh, you know, do, new testing methodologies are coming into place, which objectively would change some of the information that's coming out. So the public knows it's there. They're watching it. Uh, they're concerned about what its effect is going to be on the world. Uh, they think it's going to be much bigger there than it is going to be in this country. But in terms of their own personal situation, they really haven't changed a lot of their personal behavior. 
uh, but they're willing to look at some fairly strong measures if this issue gets worse to stop it, and they're w- willing to make some pretty strong intervention th- in, interventions in their own lives to stop it as well. Uh, you also asked about confidence in local health services, because really, we do have to put our faith that local health agencies are telling us what's happening and giving us the best information. Yeah, and in Canada, there's a lot of confidence in our in our health authorities to be able to deal with this. Now, we've got some experience with it, right? I mean, we've got some pretty um, uh, aggressive campaigns by uh, provincial and, and uh, local uh, governments ar- around the country on things like, for example, flu vaccines. So we've been uh, we've been talking about this a lot. Uh, we've had ex- recent, fairly recent experience with SARS, in which they've been able to you know deal with that situation, and people generally have confidence in those who have scientific training and who are experts in this space, particularly if they're in Canada, to be able to deal with these kinds of situations. So they're looking uh, to our uh, our public health officials to protect them, and they're trusting them to do the job. Uh, and you mentioned uh, people making personal choices on what they will do in response to this. And one of those questions you asked was avoiding airline travel and interesting hand-washing and people really uh, focusing on that. And, and uh, not a huge surprise that that's a large percentage of people saying they're going to increase hand-washing, maybe decrease travel. Yeah. So uh, when we ask people about traveling to infected areas, about 70 percent say, nope, not me. But then the question is how many of them are going to do it anyway? <laughs> Right. And, but washing hands more often, yeah, up, up around 70%. Taking a vaccine if one is developed. I thought the numbers would be higher in Canada on this. It's only 45% say that they would. Uh, and this, you know, this is an increasing problem in society. Uh, people's uh, confidence in, in vaccines protecting them from diseases and concerns that they have about, uh, about potential side effects. It's really kind of bitten into that process that I think was fairly, um, fairly common uh, and, and accepted uh, until fairly recently uh, that vaccines are actually a good thing. We only see half people willing to do this. Avoiding large crowds, about a third of us say that we would avoid them. Using more disinfectants. I mean, if good time to buy, uh, I would say, shares in a company that manufactures Purell because it's about 40% that say that. Uh, but, you know, down to things like, for example, avoiding purchasing f- uh, food products from China. About a third of us say that we would, we would avoid that. Or buying other products that are made in China. About a fifth of us say that we would avoid that. Now, the point on that is, how much do we know about what's actually made in China is another question. Which, over time, I think is, could be one of the impacts of this whole thing if it goes on for any longer period of time when people really start examining how things are made in the world and how much exposure, uh, um, for example, the Canadian economy has to things that can happen in a place like China. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned too the vaccine question. I found that very interesting with Japan, which had a very high awareness given the proximity where Japan is to uh, where a mm-hmm. lot of the virus is, but only 23% said they would take a vaccine if developed. Yeah, and that's an interesting one, one we probably have to look at a lot more closely. They're the lowest in the world. I wonder what, how, you know, what the uptake is, for example, when it comes to things like, for example, uh, you know, getting uh, an annual flu shot or any other types of vaccines that, uh, that one would normally take. Uh, interesting question for Japan. And uh, one other one we'll quickly look at, uh, avoiding shaking hands with others. Again, about a third of Canadians say they would avoid doing that. Yeah, no, and... Uh, but, and, and that's, that's something, so we're seeing a lot of elbow bumping. I'm seeing it in my own work environment these days. But also, I mean, some really uh, difficult things, for example, like avoiding eating in Asian restaurants. About 12% of us say that we would do that. Avoid contact with people who appear to be of Chinese origin. Uh, one in 10 of us say that. Um, now, who knows what they 
what, what this would have been before that, but clearly there's some elements of that, um, the, uh, elements of concern about what the domestic effects could be on people's behavior, uh, particularly towards uh, you know, visible minority groups here in this country. All right, uh, Daryl, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on, Joe.